Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. I think I've, I've maybe told this story before. Uh, when I was young, uh, we were at some people's house from the church. Uh, my dad was a pastor for most of my growing up years. And, uh, and we were hanging out with a family, as pastors do from time to time. And uh, I'm sure that my parents were sitting in the living room with them, you know, helping them through some stuff. And then the kids are all off playing. And uh, they had a son who was about our age. His name was Keith. And Keith had in his closet a big box of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figures. Um, oh, man, I had such a good time. I was, you know, playing with them, and, and they were fighting and doing little voices for them and all of that. And, and there I am uh, playing with uh, Bebop, who's one of the Shredder's henchmen, and, and I'm playing away, and then I snapped his hand off. Any of you that had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles figures, remember those hands with sort of, it's sort of like the heads on the Barbies, the heads come off. And, and like, when it's done, it's done. And there's not really any going back and, and fixing it. And I, I was thinking about how much things have changed. I feel like I could find a part for that online now. But back when I was a child in the 80s, there was no online part shop for your toys. And so, uh, so it was broke. So uh, I immediately, of course, was uh, flushed with feelings of shame and guilt. And, and then the thought occurred to me that if I just put the toy back in the box, like I never touched it, then this will never get traced back to me. And so that is precisely what I did. I put the toy back in the box, and, and I have been haunted by feelings of guilt and shame ever since. And I think one of the reasons I tell this story is I just need to get it off my chest again to a new group of people. Um, uh, never was confronted with what I'd done, uh, but I imagine that at some point, uh, poor Keith went to the closet, got out his Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and there's Bebop with a broken hand, and he probably thought, oh my gosh, who did this? Who did this terrible thing? I had a toy that at one time was whole and all together and perfect, and now I've got something that's borderline, just a piece of junk. Uh, maybe I should throw this away. Um, and, and these kinds of things happen especially when we see something that's broken or something that's wrong, sometimes those words will come out of our mouths. Who did this? We're moving into John chapter 9, and it starts with one of those types of questions. Uh, John chapter 9 verse 1 begins and says, As he went along, he saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, the he here is Jesus, his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. They're going along, they see a man who's blind. We know this isn't right. This is like the broken toy. And the question comes up, whose fault is this? Who did this? Who is it that should be paying for this thing that's broken? Now, on one hand, we know who's paying for it right now. The blind man, right? He's born blind. He's living his life. He's 
uh, I imagine, uh, challenged in all kinds of different ways because of his disability and his inability to see. Um, but the disciples are asking a question on a deeper level. Like, who, whose fault is this? We see something that's bad. Why are things this way? Uh, on a level, I think one reason they're asking this question is because these are all Jews who are living by the Old Testament law. And, and the Old Testament law commands people who want to be faithful to God to open wide their hand to their brother or sister and to the needy person or the poor person who's among them. And so they have a command that they're trying to live by that says you should be generous to those who are in a position of vulnerability and, and neediness. And this blind man, of course, is. And so I think uh, one reason that they're asking is just the general who did this. But another reason I think they're asking it is because Jesus' disciples are wrestling with their obligation regarding the suffering that they're witnessing right now. And there's nothing that eases someone's feelings of obligation to help do something than being sure that the person uh, deserves it in one way or another, whatever it is that they're suffering under. When we see something that's wrong, we want to know why. And oftentimes, I think one reason we want to know why is we want to make sure it's not our fault, but we also are trying to determine whether or not we are obligated to help. If I see someone zipping by me at 90 miles an hour on the freeway, and then I see their car wrapped around a pole later on, I'll feel very differently than if I see someone driving in the slow lane carefully, hitting a patch of ice, and then wrapping their car around a pole. I mean, I would like to think I would stop and help in either situation. But I have a different feeling about it. One is like, oh, that person had it coming to him. The other one is, well, that's, that's an unfortunate, this person's a victim of circumstances beyond their control. So we have this blind man who's poor, he's in need of help, and it's like the disciples are saying, is it his fault that he's blind, that he's poor, that he's in need of help? Or... Is it his parents' fault? Is, it, is he a victim of things he couldn't control? You can't control who your parents are. And, and apparently in their worldview, if your parents were sinful people, God might punish them by giving them a blind child. And, uh, and the blind child, of course, is just collateral damage in God's desire to punish the parents, I guess. Anyhow. Um, of course, these wonderings are all part of the bigger question that's out there, which is why do bad things happen at all? Why is it? You know, we in the creation account we have we have a portrait painted of a good God who makes a good creation, and so why do things that are not good ever happen in our world? I think at times this question can be brought up as a bit of an accusation against God's character. Look, you say that you're good, Christians claim that you're good, but I don't understand how a good God would let bad things happen. This would probably be a good time to review something that we talked about uh, uh, several weeks ago. The, the, it, it, one of the first things that stands out in the Hebrew account of creation in the book of Genesis, one of the things that really stands out about their claims about God is that the creator that they believe in is a God who shares his authority with his creation. The creator shares his authority in the creation narrative in Genesis 
He initially shares his authority with the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens. These are all representative of the powers and principalities of spiritual beings who he gives authority over times and seasons. For the ancient mind, this represented this host of eternal spiritual beings that God is giving authority to in his creation. And and they believed that these beings, these hosts, these sons of God, as they're called in the Old Testament, uh, existed in our world and had authority over all, really all the elements of creation. Um, Then we see God moving on in the creation narrative and he makes humanity in his image so that they might rule and govern over the earth, over the animals and, and everything. And so we have God creating spiritual beings who, who rule over the heavens, the skies, up in the, the spiritual realm. And then he creates humanity in his image to rule over the earth here in this realm. God creates these beings and he gives them authority. So we have a God who's good, holy and totally good. And yet he is sharing authority with the things that he has created. And then we see in the story that God has given these things he's created, not just authority over the earth, but authority over their own lives and their own decisions and the things that they want to do. They're capable of using their God-given authority to do things that would be outside of God's goodness. This principle is it's really implied in the assumption behind the disciples' question. You notice they ask this question, and they say, was it the man's parents who sinned, or was it the man who sinned? We see something bad, but they aren't saying this is God's fault, this good God's fault that there's something bad. They're pointing right away to this idea that we know that this is this bad thing exists because these beings that God has a shared shared authority with have done something outside of his ideal. They've sinned. God has his ideal, and these beings operating in the authority God has given them have missed the idea, ideal. They haven't measured up to it. And because of sin, we now have something in creation, a blind man who's been blind from birth, that doesn't line up with who we believe God created humanity to be or the goodness that we believe God created the world in. So then the question is, is the man here of his own accord or is his parents, is he a victim of those who have been in authority over him or is he here because he's just done a terrible job? Um, Jesus replies, he answers them in verse three. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. I think in some ways it's like Jesus is saying to them, okay, you know, good guess. I guess he's not saying good guess. He's just saying you're, you're wrong. It wasn't this man's sin, it wasn't his parents' sin in terms of culpability or why this thing has happened. I think in some ways, uh, Jesus has pointed out to them, if nothing else, they're not completely wrong. This is a really incomplete uh, idea uh, or an incomplete list of suspects, right? Uh, there are hosts of factors and variables. We have you know, this man's sinfulness, we have his parents' sinfulness, we acknowledge that exists. But Jesus is like, that's not the thing that tipped the balance and and made this guy blind. There's so much more to see in it, and and there's so much more to this world, and there's so many more wills at work in this world. So when we try to ask the question, why do bad things happen, Uh, we could never point to one thing and say, that's what it is. I think of the different illnesses and things that we're plagued by today. 
Um, and, and you begin to account for a moment, like uh, all of the decisions that have been made in the history of humanity that have led up to a, a carcinogen-infested world that we live in. And you begin to realize, oh my goodness, there are so many factors that might go into why my loved one got cancer. And things that happened years and years ago that might play into that. Um, and I think that's a great example of how when anything bad is happening, there's probably all kinds of variables playing into that. And so it really isn't helpful for us to play the blame game when bad things happen. And I think in some ways Jesus is trying to move the conversation on for that. Let's not talk about this man's decisions. Let's not talk about his parents' decisions. Let's talk about something else. Jesus says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It wasn't his parents' sin. It wasn't his sin. But this has happened so that God's works might be on display in this man. It's where we see the idea that is carried all throughout the biblical narrative that God has a plan, that even those things that are evil or done for evil can become platforms where God displays his goodness in creation once again. Probably one of the more familiar and famous stories of this in the Bible is the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And so we have Abraham, who has a son Isaac, who has a son Jacob, who gets named Israel by God. Israel has 12 sons with four different women, and they all become the tribes of Israel. And, uh, and one of these sons, named Joseph, is his father's favorite son. And as you might imagine, the, well, he's the 11th born, so the 10 older brothers are pretty resentful of Joseph because nobody likes uh, dad's favorite except for dad's favorite and dad, I guess. Uh, anyhow, so they betray him one day. He goes out into the field. They betray him. Uh, they cast him into a pit. They talk about killing him. In the end, they decide, no, we're going to sell him into slavery uh, to some people who are headed to Egypt. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. He goes to Egypt as a slave. Um, God blesses him in his work. He ends up in a prominent place of, of servanthood in a prominent person's household. But then he's wrongfully accused of a crime. And he ends up in prison. And while he's in prison, he ends up in a position to, to bring some insight and spiritual wisdom to the Pharaoh. And he ends up getting promoted over the whole land. But throughout the story, you can see these things where people mistreat Joseph with evil in mind. And God works through the circumstances over the course of time to make these things good for him. And so you imagine Joseph when he was wrongfully accused and he's got his first day in prison and he's probably thinking to himself, man, how did I ever get here? I went from being a favorite son of dad to now being in the pit in Egypt in prison. This is terrible. How can good ever come out of this? But it ends up being that God uses him being in the prison to have him in the right place at the right time to connect with the right people to eventually become second only to Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. He ends up guiding through his spiritual wisdom, guiding the land of Egypt through a time of famine. He stores up food before the famine hits. And, and so Egypt has food when nobody else does. And, and then his, his brothers end up, because they're hungry and not living in Egypt, 
They end up coming to him to buy grain, not knowing that it's him. And, and God ends up using Joseph's place, not just to save the land of Egypt, but then to save his own family, his own brothers who betrayed him from the famine. Anyhow, this all happens. Joseph's uh, brothers end up moving to Egypt to, to live there and, and to eat because they have food there. And, and dad ends up coming and, and gets to see that Joseph is still alive. Uh, the Bible doesn't record how that conversation went with his other sons who had told him that he died. Uh, but anyhow, when Israel finally dies, Joseph's brothers are scared because they think to themselves, maybe now that dad is dead, Joseph's going to jump on this to, to, to finally get revenge for all of these years of hardship that he's had to endure. And they're sort of talking amongst themselves and they're really worried. And Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended what you did to harm me, but God intended it for good. He wanted to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It might seem like a roundabout way for God to accomplish good things when he works through the brokenness and the rebellion and the mistreatment and the evil that these uh, free-willed beings are constantly sowing in his world. And yet I would ask you this question. How else does a God who's committed to sharing authority continue to infuse his goodness into the world but to work alongside all of the people that he's shared authority with and out of his the abundance of his wisdom and his ability to... You know, he's so much higher and smarter and more wise than all of us. He works through all of these circumstances to turn things around for good. He doesn't mind getting his hands dirty, working alongside flawed human beings, flawed beings that he has created to bring good out of their flawed choices. I think amidst the host of variables that are constantly bringing evil into our world, there is a good God who's working in all of that and working it all together for our good. I don't know how many of you saw the uh, the latest Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but you know the Dieter family was there in full force on opening night uh, to check it out. And uh, I, I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but but there's this character named Rocket Raccoon who's a raccoon who was kidnapped by aliens and, and experimented on. And, and some, some terrible, terrible things were done to him, and then he was cast aside. And, and so he's a character who's always sort of just mulling through, what is my purpose in life? Uh, I, I, I know the people who, quote-unquote, made me a genetically modified raccoon. The people who made me told me that I was just a part of a series to get somewhere and that I was, he was going to be cast aside and, and, uh, and incinerated, but he escaped, you know, dramatically. Um, but anyhow, he, he's told by the people who made him that he actually has no purpose. And you imagine what a hopeless and empty place that would leave someone to be told by their creator that they have no purpose. But there's this super moving scene in the, in the movie where, where someone's speaking to Rocket and reminds him that despite what he heard from the hands that made him, that there were hands behind the hands that made him guiding this whole process and that he, in fact, was created for a purpose by someone who was behind the scenes, behind it all, even guiding these evil hands who made him so that he was made for an important 
and good purpose. And I, and I thought to myself, I'm watching a Christian movie right now. I can't, it's a Christian movie. I can't believe it. God working through the brokenness of humanity to reveal his goodness in the world, even if that brokenness is manifest in Marvel Studios. Isn't it amazing? Um, so Jesus points us to this reality that God is committed to doing something here. That even in this broken situation, a blind man, that God has a plan for his work to be on display in this person's life. And he still isn't done talking, though. Verse 4, he says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's one part of those two verses that jumped off the page to me this week. It's this we stuff, right? Jesus' disciples are pointing out a problem to him. He assures them that God has a plan in it all. And then he uses this we language. He says, we got to get to work. Because yes, something is broken here. We have to get to work doing the work of God in this situation. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he invites the disciples to work with him. It's again, this God who shares authority, right? Shares authority and responsibility. Even these disciples who are riddled with examples of human flawness. Even for them, he's saying, not to them, and so I'm going to fix this. He says, so let's get to work together. We are going to get to work. This is not a Jesus looking at them and saying a me and you scenario. This is Jesus looking at them and saying, we are going to do this. After saying this, verse 6, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Verse 7, he says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. I wonder what that would be like to be born blind, then have an encounter with Jesus one day where your eyes are open and suddenly you can see. Think of the things that you see in life that you really, really enjoy. I, I love sunsets. And, and in, my, in my sentimental old age, I, I, I'm moved emotionally when I see beautiful things in nature now. It wasn't that way when I was younger, but I feel something when I see it. Every now and then, my eyes get just a little misty. Um, think about the difference between seeing a waterfall versus just hearing it. Or seeing a campfire versus just feeling the warmth off of it. I imagine for this blind man whose eyes were open that day, an entire world that he never knew existed, and a realm of possibilities and pleasures that he'd never, ever tasted, were suddenly opened up to him. What an incredible experience. And I wonder if, in a way, his enjoyment of seeing in the world was all the sweeter for all the years that he had not been able to see. One thing that we can struggle with is just taking for granted the abilities and the things that we can do, right? And if you've ever had those sorts of things taken away from you for a moment, you're thinking, oh, I would give anything to enjoy that again. I imagine these things were incredibly sweet and wonderful for him and all the sweeter for the decades he'd spent in darkness. Here we have an example of the work of God bringing good 
out of evil. We have an example of God not being hung up or preoccupied on whose fault this is or who deserves what, but being committed to working through the brokenness of our world to do good things. And here we have God inviting his disciples to be a part of that work. This is the part that really intrigues me today. And maybe some of it is that I'm, I'm very much a doer. And so, um, you know, if you say, James, I'd love for you to just come over and hang out and watch a game. Like, I'll do that because I love you and I don't mind hanging out and watching a game. But if you were like, James, I need help moving stuff. And like, I'm there. My heart is just, I just love, I love helping. I love doing stuff. And so this idea that God would invite me, a flawed human being, into doing the work of the kingdom, it, it really excites my heart. Um, it's wonderful, the invitations we have in Scripture to, to be still and know that He is God, to abide in Him. And these are all things, these are growth areas for me. But like the doing stuff, that's not a growth area for me. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Sign me up for that. I get excited about that. Um, what an incredible thing that God has given us that he says, the time is short. We must do the works of God while it's still called today. What a challenge for us that being the church is more about just it's, it's, it's more than just hanging out together. It's more than maybe coming and, and singing songs. Like when, when Christ saves us, it's not so that we can go to church and be comfortable there. But there's, there is a dark and broken world that God is constantly working to put back together. And he has invited us to be a part of that. He's entrusted you with some of these areas of brokenness and is specifically sending you to be a part of putting it back together. We serve a God who does not mind getting his hands dirty to restore sight to the blind. And he is giving us an open invitation. Maybe it would be more accurate to say it's a command to get our hands dirty and be a part of that work together. We really embrace a relational model of, of ministry at Renewal. We believe that God is a God who is about relationship. As God is revealed in the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we see that everything is supposed to be done out of rich relationship with one another. At the same time, I really believe that our church calendar should not just be filled up with opportunities for fellowship. That the extent of our Christian experiences walking in relationship with one another it should not just consist of fellowship. Well, we just want to get to know each other better. We just want to hang out. We just want to connect. If you really want to connect with someone, go and get your hands dirty with them. Go and do something that, that really matters. Don't just sit down and watch a movie together, but become a part of each other's lives in a way that you're serving and making a difference. Think about our conversations that we'll have with one another or the mindset that we approach church life and when you walk through those doors and into this room what you should be looking for is where is there a manifestation of the brokenness of this world that is an opportunity for the work of God to be on display 
And how is he calling me to be a part of that? We are invited to participate in the work of God together. And my hope is that we would be a church that lives into that invitation really, really well. Uh, we're going to take a few minutes to have uh, some discussion time. Uh, maybe I'll pray before we turn ourselves loose for that. Lord, uh, we just thank you that you do have power to transform the reality of our broken world. We thank you for the way that your power has been at work in each of our lives individually. And we thank you for the way that your power is at work, we believe, in a collective way, bringing us together to be a part of this work that you are constantly doing. Lord, forgive us for the moments when our hands are a little lazy or we're a little distracted or we're just missing the opportunities that we have to do your restorative work in our world. Open our eyes to see the needs around us and open our hearts to respond to those needs, ready to do whatever it is your spirit might be leading us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.